0: I intend to full my serve term as I was elected to do.
1: <laughs> Wait, what did he say? He's going to full his serve term? So confusing. Well,
0: I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs to the left me, to the right here i am stuck in the middle with you yep. yes, stuck in from
1: pacifica you. radio in los angeles this is the broadcast as heard on kpfk 90.7 fm in la up in oregon on the central coast on kyaq and in cottage grove on queso in lancaster pennsylvania on wlri maui hawaii's kaku Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day, so you have no excuses. You can hear us on the Progressive Voices channel, Net Radio, Indie Media, Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around very, very swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us. We will get to uh, Paul Ryan's dyslexic announcement uh, momentarily about uh, retiring from the U.S. House of Representatives. But first, hey, here's some other fun old audio, Uh, some old Donald Trump clips. We are totally predictable. We tell everything. We're sending troops, we tell them. We're sending something else, we have a news conference.
0: We have to be unpredictable.
1: If I win, I don't want the enemy to know what I'm gonna do. All I can tell you is that it is a foolproof way of winning the war with ISIS. I never saw anything like this. Every time we're gonna attack somebody, we explain we're gonna
0: attack, we'll be attacking at three noon on uh, March 25th. Wouldn't it be better to not say anything and do it
1: Yeah, wouldn't that be better? So here's a story. Uh, U.S. President Donald Trump warned Russia on Wednesday of imminent military action in Syria over a suspected poison gas attack, declaring that missiles, quote, will be coming. His uh, warning to Russia was in a tweet which said Russia vows to shoot down any and all missiles fired at Syria. Get ready, Russia, because they will be coming nice and new and smart. That's in quotes, Des. Uh, You shouldn't be partners with a gas-killing animal who kills his people and enjoys it, the President of the United States said on Twitter today.
2: Wow. Okie dokie then.
1: Trump was reacting to a warning from Russia that any U.S. missiles fired fired at Syria in response to a deadly assault on a rebel enclave near Damascus would be shot down and the launch sites would be targeted. That means, as I read it, that if and when we fire missiles from warships, as Donald Trump has uh, seemingly promised would happen... When we fire those missiles from warships in the Mediterranean to target Syrian forces, those U.S. ships will be considered targets by the impressive Russian air force that is now in Syria and fighting alongside Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's forces. Trump's comments raised the prospect of direct conflict over Syria for the first time between the two world powers backing opposing sides in the seven-year-old civil war. In response, Russia's foreign ministry said, quote, smart missiles should fly towards terrorists, not towards the lawful government. That was Russian foreign ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova. She charged that any U.S. missile salvo could be an attempt to destroy evidence of the reported gas, ta- uh, gas attack in the town of Duma. Damascus and Moscow have denied any responsibility. They say the incident, uh, as reported, is bogus. Dozens of people in Duma have reportedly died and hundreds were injured in the attack, according to the World Health Organization. The WHO cautioned that it has no formal role in forensic inquiries into the use of chemical weapons. International inspectors are still seeking clearance from Damascus to visit Duma under safe conditions to determine whether globally banned munitions were in fact used. Moscow and Washington blocked attempts by each other at the U.N. Security Council on Tuesday to set up international investigations into chemical weapons attacks in Syria. So who knows? U.S. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis striking a tone of caution after Trump's Threat of missile strikes on Twitter said that the U.S. was assessing intelligence about the suspected attack. Asked if he had yet seen enough evidence to blame Assad, Mattis said, quote, We're still working on this. The U.S. military was ready to provide military options if appropriate, James Mattis added. Two U.S. government sources told Reuters that the U.S. did not have 100 percent solid evidence of what nerve agent was used in Syria or of where it came from. So we don't yet know that, in fact, uh, there was a chemical attack, uh, much less uh, who was behind it. And yet Donald Trump is out there uh, warning get ready because uh, missiles are coming, nice and new and smart missiles.
2: And he was doing it
1: on Twitter. On Twitter, the same guy who had gone throughout the entire, you know, 26 campaign, uh, just excoriating Barack Obama for letting anyone know before in advance of these missile strikes, he turns around and does it himself. Exactly. The... The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which is a British-based war monitor, said that pro-government forces were emptying main airports now and military air bases. The Syrian military has also been repositioning some air assets to avoid the fallout from possible missile strikes. According to Reuters, uh, who got that from U.S. officials, the Russian military said it had observed movements of U.S. Navy forces in the Gulf. Any U.S. strike would probably involve the Navy, given the risk to aircraft from Russian and Syrian air defenses. A U.S.-guided missile destroyer, the USS Donald Cook, is currently in the Mediterranean. The Syrian foreign ministry accused the U.S., which has supported some rebel groups in Syria's conflict, of using, quote, fabrications and lies as an excuse to hit its territory. The state news agency uh, SANA cited a ministry official as saying, we are not surprised by such a thoughtless escalation by a regime like the United States regime, which sponsored terrorism in Syria and still does, they say. In London, British Prime Minister Theresa May said that all indications pointed to Syrian government responsibility for the alleged chemical attack. Uh, She told reporters, we are rapidly reaching an understanding of what happened on the ground. The BBC reported later that May was ready to give the go ahead for Britain to take part in military action, She would not seek approval, however, from Parliament to do so, according to the BBC, despite calls from the opposition Labour Party for Parliament to be given a say. Well, hey, at least there is a debate about that in Britain, whether Parliament should be given a say. Here in the U.S., apparently we don't bother with such trivial things anymore as, uh, you know, the U.S. Constitution's requirement that only Congress can declare war. That despite, by the way, as I guess I'm going to have to continue to remind people, Barack Obama actually did seek approval from Congress, at least for an attack on Syria in response to a, a separate alleged chemical attack back in 2013. Congress refused to give the president that, uh, 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 that ability to launch that attack on Syria. By contrast, Donald Trump Just bombed the crap out of him last year, Uh, and rather than call for Donald Trump's impeachment, Democrats in Congress joined Republicans in lauding that unauthorized aggression against a sovereign nation. But hey, uh, Reuters reports oil prices jumped to their highest level in more than three years on Wednesday after Trump's warning, so there's that. However, U.S. stock index futures fell sharply due to alarm about a possible Russian-U.S. conflict over Syria. Speaking of oil prices and future prices, we will be talking about exactly that with my guest Carol Muffett of the Center for International Environmental Law. That's coming up in a few moments. But I digress. The Russian military uh, said in mid-March that it would respond to any U.S. strike on Syria by targeting any missiles and launchers involved. Russia is Assad's most powerful ally, and its devastating air power has helped him wrest back large areas of territory from rebels since 2015, Reuters reports. With tensions growing, however, European Air Traffic Control Agency uh, Eurocontrol warned airlines to exercise caution in the Eastern Mediterranean due to the possibility of airstrikes in Syria over the next 72 hours. Both Russia and Iran, Iran uh, Assad's other main ally, have warned his enemies against military action in recent days, underlining their commitment to the Syrian government that they have armed and uh, supported for years uh, throughout this conflict in Syria. Ali Akbar Velayati, the top advisor to Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, said during a visit to Damascus on Tuesday that an Israeli attack on an airbase in Syria on Monday would, quote, not remain without response. So, great. U.S. versus Russia and Israel versus Iran. This is all going very well. Israel held top-level security consultations on Wednesday on the possibility that it could be targeted by Syria or Iran if the United States strikes Syrian government forces. Syria's Russian-supplied air defenses shot down an Israeli F-16 jet back in February during a previous bombing run against what Israel described as Iranian-backed positions in Syria. So we can look forward to that as well, I guess, if we have uh, U.S. planes flying over Syria. And uh, so, so much for Donald Trump's promise to keep us out of foreign wars of aggression, apparently. By the way, I should make clear this would have happened had Hillary Clinton won the election in 2016 as well. The difference here is that Donald Trump pretended to be against such foreign incursions uh, and, of course, of letting targets know about it in advance. But uh, speaking of broken promises, the new U.S. normal, as we wait for... uh, War to break out yet again. The new U.S. normal of $1 trillion or more annual federal budget deficits officially began this week as the Congressional Budget Office released its economic and budget outlook report showing that the deficit, more than $1 trillion in deficits, will be at least. Uh, That high every year now that Donald Trump is president, although there have been private sector projections exactly the same for months now that the government's red ink will hit and exceed a trillion dollars for years to come. This, according to Forbes, is the first report by Congress's official budget watchdog since last year's big tax cut and this year's big spending deal were enacted that will show the deficit rising precipitously and staying at that very high level through the next 10 years. The Trump deficits assume a relatively high level of economic growth, however. So if the economic outlook does not turn out to be quite as rosy as the White House is promising, the very high Trump-era federal uh, budget deficit will be even higher year after year. Responding to the CBO report, Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee, who is retiring this year, said, quote, if it ends up costing what has been laid out here, it could well be one of the worst votes I've ever made, he said at a Senate Budget Committee hearing on the CBO estimate. Uh, Corker had voted against a, virgin, a version of the GOP tax cut bill in early December. He was the only Republican senator at the time to cast a no vote. However, he went ahead and voted for the final bill after a House-Senate reconciliation of their two versions. He joined the rest of his Senate GOP colleagues to support the legislation that was backed by President Trump, resulting in these huge new deficits as far as the eye can now see. At one point, Corker had vowed not to vote for any tax bill that added even one cent to the deficit. But like pretty much all of uh, the Republicans in Congress, retiring or not, Bob Corker apparently was just kidding when he pretended to give a damn about deficits, at least when there's a Republican in the White House. They spent quite a few years pretending otherwise, you may recall, those Republicans, for example, under Barack Obama... Being outraged about government deficits, uh, despite the fact that Barack Obama actually decreased the deficit during his term in office. Other Republicans, the Hill notes, have simply cast aside the CBO estimates as inaccurate. They're just wrong. The CBO and everyone else just has it wrong. We don't have to pay attention to it at all. So, you know who else spent his career pretending that government deficits were outrageous and required huge cuts to spending? Someone else who now also happens to be retiring at the end of this term? That would be the Republican Speaker of the U.S. House, Paul Ryan, who made his announcement that he would not be running for re-election on Wednesday.
0: Today, I'm announcing that this year will be my last one as a member of the House. Uh, to be clear, I am not resigning. I intend to full my served term as I was elected to do, uh, but I will be retiring in January, leaving this majority in good hands with what I believe is a very bright future.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, he's going to uh, full his served term. Yeah. Uh, and before retiring in January, and he will be leaving the this party and this house in uh, it, on great terms.
2: Yeah, it's like uh, lighting a match and throwing it onto the fire and running away.
1: Yeah, it's kind of what he's doing. Uh, But, uh, you know, let's all stay in denial for the Republican Party, I guess. That announcement by the Wisconsin Republican comes in the wake of a special election for a seat in the state Senate uh, last January in a very Republican district, which was flipped to a Democrat
2: you mean in Wisconsin?
1: Uh, what did I say? You
2: didn't say, you didn't oh, say which uh, well, state. You just okay, said yeah, state.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. Because so. uh, he's from Wisconsin. Right. Uh, also in Wisconsin, there was an election for state Supreme Court just last week where the candidate supported by progressives trounced the candidate backed by Wisconsin's Repu- uh, powerful Koch brothers fueled Republican machine. That was the first time that had happened in some 25 years. And all of that helps explain why Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker had refused at least until ordered by three separate courts, three separate judges in the state to call new special elections for two other long held Republican seats in the state legislature, which have also become vacant and which Scott Walker uh, is trying to leave vacant for as long as possible as Republicans figure out how the hell to Avoid what appears to be an upcoming blue wave this uh, this November last week when I had native Wisconsin son John Nichols of the nation on the show the day after that state Supreme Court uh, election where Democrats just uh, whooped the uh, Republican supported candidate. I asked John whether he thought Ryan himself, Paul Ryan, would now be vulnerable To uh, losing a challenge from Democrats in the U.S. House, particularly uh, by their uh, leading candidate uh, for the nomination, Randy Bryce, progressive iron worker and union organizer. And for that matter, whether he thought Paul Ryan would actually be running at all this year uh, or whether he was just going to quit rather than lose. Uh, John Nichols, I think, got it, uh, let's say, about half right. Number one, the chance
0: he could lose increasingly good. If indeed it's a blue wave election, his district is gerrymandered in his favor, but it's not so gerrymandered that a blue wave could not push him out. Mm. He's, in, he's really in a bad place. He's got tons of money. but he's in, People are pretty up in arms about him. Secondly, the chance that he'll quit. I, I, I really doubt that he'll quit because he's an incredibly loyal Republican. And if he were to step down now as the Speaker of the House and say, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not going to run, mm-hmm. I think the impact on the party would be so devastating that a bad year could turn dramatically worse.
1: Well, that bad year might uh, begin to uh, turn dramatically worse at this point. That was John Nichols last week on the broadcast. Uh, dozens of gop peers in what might otherwise be safe districts continue to head for the exits at this point and now with the U. with the House Speaker turning tail rather than risk losing this year in a blue anti-Trump wave uh, well that has got to be uh, just a little bit demoralizing for the party I would think.
2: Oh I'm sure and you know perhaps it's also the fact that if he thinks he's going to lose he now has a great opportunity to cash in and become a lobbyist.
1: Yeah exactly and uh, keep his powder dry in case He wants to run for president, as I suspect he will down the line. Uh, The Twitterati comments today on Paul Ryan on all of this were instructive, I think. Donald Trump said, uh, quote, Speaker Ryan is a truly good man, and while he will not be seeking re-election, he will leave a legacy of achievement that nobody can question. (laughs) Well, plenty of folks appear to be questioning that legacy today. Dan Pfeiffer, former Obama administration uh, uh, spokesperson, said, uh, here's what you need to know about Paul Ryan. His main regret as he leaves Congress is that he failed to take health care away from more people. He says Paul Ryan is a, quote, policy wonk. If you define a wonk as someone who lies effortlessly about policy and shifts his positions based on the political wins. Matthew Iglesias over at Vox.com notes Paul Ryan loves his kids so much because, you know, he said he's got to spend time with he's leaving to spend time with his kids. Uh, He loves his kids so much that he's willing to take time away from his lifelong commitment to taking food and medicine away from poor children in order to spend more time with them. Matthew Dowd, former George W. Bush administration official, now an ABC News uh, political analyst, says, Paul Ryan reminds me of a bartender who serves airline pilots shot after shot, takes no responsibility for potential harm, then quits his job when the authorities start investigating all the airline crashes. John Lovett says Paul Ryan will go down as one of the worst speakers of the House in American history. He should slink away. He's a former Obama speechwriter. National editor of the Daily Beast, Justin Miller, says Paul Ryan leaves the House Intelligence Committee now in tatters and trillion-dollar deficits as far as the eye can see. But remember, Donald Trump said no one can question his legacy. Derek Thompson of The Atlantic says Paul Ryan rose to prominence by weaponizing Obama-era deficits and winning plaudits from centrists, so-called centrists, for his austerity math. He leaves office mere days after a CBO report finds the GOP government has, in a matter of months, increased deficits in the 2018 through uh, 2022 period by more than $1.2 trillion. Alec McGillis of ProPublica says, uh, I really can't overstate what a symbolic rebuke it is to all of those who hailed Paul Ryan's self-professed deficit hawkery. For him to go out the day after the CBO lays bare the rising tide of red ink, as far as the eye can see. Josh Green, a political reporter and author, says Paul Ryan styled himself a deficit hawk throughout his 20-year career, but the federal budget had a surplus when he got to Congress in 1998 and now has a large and growing deficit. John Harwood of CNBC points out that since Reagan... All three GOP presidents left the Oval Office with higher deficits than when they walked in. Let me repeat that. All three GOP presidents since Reagan have left the Oval Office with higher deficits than they had when they got there. And both Democratic presidents since then have left with lower deficits when they walked in than when they walked in. Per, According to the CBO estimate, Trump is now on track For 2020 deficit to be 50 percent higher than it was when he took office in 2017. So uh, this is a guy, Paul Ryan, who spent his career calling for cutting deficits and passing schemes to defund Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security in order to do it. Then in what he describes as his greatest achievement, he passes two bills. One to cut taxes for rich people and companies uh, that increases long-term debt by more than a trillion dollars and a spending bill that increases government deficits by another trillion dollars. And it only took them 20 years to do it. But the GOP, uh, while they can, you know, their long con was about giving a damn about government spending. But that's just one of their very long cons. They have a lot of them. And unlike Democrats, they work them for years, for decades even, no matter the cost to the country or to humanity itself. Another one of those long cons is the GOP's now decades-long hustle on behalf of the fossil fuel industry. And today we have new news on yet another oil giant which now, thanks to newly unearthed internal corporate documents, We now find out that that company knew for decades about the threat of global warming caused by the release of carbon dioxide through the burning of fossil fuels, even as they were joining forces with folks like Paul Ryan and his big backers, the Koch brothers, and all of the other congressional Republicans who have been working to confuse and, yes, con the American people by pretending that none of this was going on. It's all just one big hoax. Another crack in the shell next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate and thanks. I don't want to set the world on too late I just want to start a flame in your heart Welcome back to the Bradcast Brad Friedman from bradblog.com Last year we spent some time on this program and on our Green News report reporting on the internal company documents revealing that Exxon's own scientists and executives knew damned well for decades that the normal, everyday use of their product was leading the planet over a proverbial cliff. Memos going back to uh, at least the 1970s, at least, showed that Exxon scientists had warned the company leaders that greenhouse gases produced by the burning of Uh, Fossil fuels was causing the Earth's climate to warm in such a way that both humanity itself and its company's long-term future profits and assets would soon be threatened. Setting their concerns about humanity aside, Exxon instead ended up spending millions of dollars funding outside advocacy groups to essentially lie about the threat and even very existence of global warming. And the threat that climate change posed by describing the growing mountains of science detailing it all as little more than a hoax in hopes of confusing and misleading the public and lawmakers and in hopes of preventing legislation or regulations that might have curbed the deadly burning of fossil fuels and and the release of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. All so that Exxon could continue to sell and burn fossil fuels that pollute our climate at no cost to them so that uh, their shareholders could continue to reap record profits at the expense of human civilization itself. Nice work if you can get it. Since the revelations about Exxon came to light last year, we have also learned that it wasn't only the world's largest oil and gas company who had confirmed decades ago that their product was responsible for global warming caused by the man-made burning of fossil fuels. Recently... As we reported on the Green News report just last week, videotape was unearthed by climate progress, revealing that 20 years ago, uh, back in 1998, the mobile oil CEO at the time, Lucio Noto, during an internal uh, videotape address to employees, acknowledged the science that fossil fuel emissions caused dangerous global warming and that the consequences could be dangerous to both humanity and, of course, his company. But in outlining to employees the steps that mobile oil planned to take to reduce emissions, he placed, noto did, placed the blame squarely on consumers for daring to use the product that they were pumping and selling to them in 1998, 20 years ago. We are not in any way saying that greenhouse gases can be dismissed as a risk or that climate change associated with the buildup of greenhouse gases can be dismissed on a scientific basis as being a non event We think it could potentially be a big issue. We started
2: an inventory of the greenhouse gases that we are responsible for in our facilities.
1: And that's probably only 5% of the issue in Mobile's case. Our customers using our products probably count for 95% of those emissions. But with the 5% that we're responsible for, we're doing an inventory. The XCOM has gotten the board's approval. That if there are projects which we can undertake which perhaps don't meet our own internal rate of return standards, but do have a major impact on our own emissions of
2: greenhouse gases, we're going to do them. We think it's prudent, we think it's responsible to do that.
1: So Exxon New, mobile Oil New. By the way, just prior to merging with Exxon to become the global ExxonMobil powerhouse and the most profitable company in the history of civilization, and now you will be shocked to learn that it wasn't only Exxon and Mobil, but Shell as well. In 1991, British-Dutch multinational oil giant Royal Dutch Shell produced a half-hour-long documentary describing the science of how burning fossil fuels causes global warming, With a stark warning of the potentially catastrophic risks of climate change, the full documentary Climate of Concern explained the basic science of climate change and warned that without strong global action to cut greenhouse gas emissions, the warming of the atmosphere would bring extreme weather, floods, famines and climate refugees. The need to
0: understand the interplay of atmosphere and oceans has been given a new sense of urgency by the realization that our energy-consuming way of life may be causing climatic changes with adverse consequences for us all. Change too fast, perhaps, for life to adapt without severe dislocation. What they foresee is not a steady and even warming overall, but alterations to the familiar patterns of climate and the increasing frequency of abnormal weather
1: so exxon knew mobile knew, shell knew. all of them decades ago all the while these same companies spent millions on climate denial groups and direct lobbying of public officials to promote the idea that climate change was a hoax so that they could continue to burn fossil fuels and release dangerous greenhouse gases while raking in record profits no matter the cost to mankind. A new analysis by the Center for International Environmental Law, also known as CL, of a massive new trove of internal shell documents unearthed by Dutch journalist Hilmer Mommers reveals that the global oil giant understood and acted on climate science while publicly sowing doubt as to its validity and fighting its regulations. The analysis, which they've titled A Crack in the Shell, New Documents Expose a Hidden Climate History, details a troubling pattern in Shell's behavior, making declarations about the dangers of climate change while at the same time working with other companies to oppose climate action, including by spreading misinformation, and then leaving after the damage has already been done. Sound familiar? Here to discuss the new analysis and the newly unearthed shell documents is Carol Muffet. He is the president and CEO of the Center for International Environmental Law. He's a recognized expert on the international law of wildlife and the timber trade, a leader in the emerging field of the international legal response to climate change. Uh, CL, the Center for uh, International Environmental Law, is a nonprofit organization using the power of law to protect the environment, promote human rights, and ensure a just and sustainable society, or at least try like hell to. Carol Muffet, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks, Brad. It's, it's good to be here. Is your new report finds that this is not a story that even goes back to the 80s or 90s, uh, as we hear in that 90s documentary there, but many decades earlier than that. Uh, these newly uncovered documents go back at least as far as 1958, with Shell looking at fossil fuel-related science behind climate change?
0: That's right. Uh, we, you know, the, the earliest document that we have with respect to Shell is actually – not only relating to shell it was a report for the oil industry's smoke and fumes committee that was reporting on research that the industry was funding into a variety of air pollutants and even in nineteen fifty eight one of those air pollutants that this Shell this shell researcher reports on was was the pollution of the atmosphere mm-hmm. by carbon from fossil fossil sources. so we can demonstrate even by nineteen fifty eight that the industry was aware of this risk, and this comes on the, you know, this is a year after we know that Exxon Mobil, which was Humble Oil at the time, was actively engaged in climate science. Um, by 1962, we can demonstrate that Shell's chief geologist was very explicitly acknowledging the links between Shell's products and uh, the combustion of fossil mm-hmm. uh, carbon dioxide from fossil fuels um, and the potential for global warming. Um, so much so that this scientist even highlighted the recommendations of other scientists that the the switch to solar energy should begin as soon as possible, even if there were challenges to doing that
1: and, um and and I, and I was and, struck and, let me let me just uh because. You know, there there has been a lot of people say, well, they knew they knew that there was a a problem. They knew that oil burning oil was was a pollutant, but not when it comes to uh, CO2. I mean, even today, they argue that carbon dioxide is not really a pollutant. But uh, the geologist chief geologist you're talking about with Shell, uh, Marion uh, King Hubbard Hubbard was his name, uh, former director of their research labs says quite plainly in that 1962 report, quote, there is evidence that the greatly increasing use of the fossil fuels, whose material contents after combustion are primarily H2O, which is water, and CO2, which is uh, carbon dioxide, is seriously contaminating the Earth's atmosphere with CO2. And he goes on to explain how CO2 warms the atmosphere, and then, yes, calls for... Mac quote maximum utilization of solar energy. That was in 1962. Not only were they recognizing the problem, they were also calling for solutions at the time.
0: Yes, and it's it's important to recognize that Hubbard was there echoing the concerns that were were presented to him and other scientists by, you know, by an outside scientist from Yale. Mm-hmm. And yet you can't ignore the fact that this is the industry's own scientists Demonstrating how acutely aware they were of climate risks, even then, and I think this is where this is what brings us back to the industry's clear acknowledgement early on that it was responsible not only for you know the emissions that came from the production of its products, but from their use. Um, that same that same Shell researcher mm-hmm. Charles Jones, who I mentioned in 1958, that same year you know submitted a, a filing to the federal government where he said. That, that the industry's role is to determine the causes and methods of control of objectionable pollution resulting from the production, manufacture, transportation, sale, and use of petroleum and its products. And so more than a, more than a half century ago, we have these companies acknowledging that they're, they're responsible for what happens when fossil fuels are burned um and that becomes really relevant when you look at these new documents for shell mm-hmm. where among other things in 1988 shell actually calculated what its own contribution to global warming really was and that's uh, that's a remarkable admission in light of the fact that independent researchers are now calculating those same figures and coming up with figures that are very similar
1: They not only knew about it, uh, but as of uh, that that report in 1988 that you reference, um, they talk about delaying action um, could mean that it would be too late. In other words, that if they didn't take action now, there'll be enough carbon in the atmosphere that we won't be able to do anything about it. So they even knew that action needed to happen right now, and this was back as early as 1988, correct?
0: That's exactly right. And so here you have Shell in 1988 saying Shell, you know, four years ago was responsible for 4% of global CO2 emissions worldwide. Shell's responsibility for the problem was that massive 4% number. Um, And then turning around and in 1991 saying, you know, the only, the best insurance here is to take action now. That's the safe insurance policy and yet we see a, a remarkable transformation that goes on between 1988 and 1991 where the company is acknowledging these risks and then by the mid 90s the sh- shell is as with other oil companies actively promoting uncertainty and the and the needs for the need for inaction instead of action in the face of mounting evidence
1: yeah that was I was struck by that 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 clip we played from that documentary from Shell was 1991 the they called it climate of concern it sure sounds like they were trying to warn about the dangers of of uh, fossil fuel related climate change back then um, but like you say, in the mid-90s, they changed course. Why? What happened? Do we yet know that part of the the, the story?
0: Well, I think we can only only begin to guess. And I think one of the big changes in circumstance that happened during that period was that the regulation, the potential regulation of climate risks, moved from a theory to a reality. Mm. It's important to recognize in 1988, The the possibility that the world would respond to climate risk was still largely speculative. Mm -hmm. But in 1994, Shell released an updated report on uh, an updated version of that earlier report with a heavy focus on scientific uncertainties. Mm. And what happened in between was that in 1992, the world adopted the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And by 1994 and 1995, they were heading into the first conferences of, conference of the parties under that treaty with a, an express goal of adopting you know, stronger rules to accelerate the response of climate change. And if, if there's anything that you know, we think may have contributed to that shift in how Shell was speaking about climate, it's that pending reality that the world was actually going to act.
1: Oh, man. So they they knew about the problems. They warned about the problems. And then when the world got around to actually acting on the problems, they said, wait, wait, wait a minute. We might not know. Uh, We need to take some more time here. Exxon uh, itself appears to have spent a lot of money funding climate change denialist groups and so forth. Uh, Shell throughout the years, uh, has actually been one of the more outspoken companies uh, talking about global warming threats. But were they doing the same thing? Were they also funding some of these same groups that uh, Exxon was was funding over the past several decades? Do we know that yet?
0: And here's where the, the stark contrast between Shell's public persona and what it was actually doing comes mm-hmm. into play. It's important to recognize that you know, at the same time that it produced that 1988 analysis, Shell joined the, the Global Climate Coalition, which was a coalition of, of oil producers and other large companies that were actively working to undermine climate science. By 1998... Shell withdrew from, the, from that same global climate coalition, but by this point, much of the damage had been done. And meantime, the American Petroleum Institute that Shell remained an active member of and supporter of launched its own climate denial efforts. And in fact, what our research shows is that, is that Shell remained an active member in a number of organizations that, that have continued climate obstruction efforts um, up to this decade, um, as, as recently as 2014 with the Western States Petroleum Association and 2015 with the American Legislative Exchange Council or Alec.
1: Shell's uh, own researchers also uh, actually predicted that climate lawsuits may occur, uh, holding them attempting to hold them accountable for this. Um, what do you see now at uh, the Center for International Environmental Law, Carol Muffet? The uh, What do you see as uh, either Exxon's legal exposure or now Shell's legal exposure? What sort of climate lawsuits were they predicting uh, years ago, and what kind of climate lawsuits are they now facing uh, in light of all of this?
0: One of the things that Shell's internal documents demonstrate very clearly is that this is a company that had a profound capacity to play out the future, to predict the future through complex scenarios that look not only at science, but at economics and, and social change. And as a result, Shell actually was very good at, at you know, projecting what is likely to happen under mm-hmm. various circumstances. And it's in light of that that I think Shell's withdrawal from, from the original GCC is telling. The reason Shell withdrew from the GCC we know from you know, we know from books that have documented um, the internal company discussions around it was Shell feared that, that the GCC and would become the next tobacco industry, and that the oil industry would face tobacco-style litigation. Mm-hmm. Um, we now know that, that that fear was fully justified. Um, now Shell, Exxon and other oil companies. Are facing litigation in nine separate U.S. cities, mm-hmm. including including San Francisco, Oakland, and the city of New York. They're under vest- under investigation, active investigation. But two separate separate state attorneys general, Shell itself, just last week was you know received a, a notice before action, which is a, a you know a threat of legal action mm-hmm. um, in the Netherlands, its home country. Um, And all of these companies are facing an ongoing human rights inquiry in the Philippines for their role in human rights violations in that country relating to climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, What we're seeing is climate litigation is accelerating rapidly, and it's not just accelerating here in the United States.
1: Uh, In the meantime, Shell has uh, put out what they call their new sky scenario in which they lay out plans to meet the goals, in theory, of the global uh, Paris climate agreement, which Donald Trump has uh, now announced he plans to pull the U.S. out of. Uh, But CL uh, argues in your report that Shell actually has no intention of pursuing their own goals that they have laid out. How How do you guys come to that conclusion?
0: Uh, it doesn't. It's not very hard to to, to come to that conclusion because Shell states it right, ex- you know, very explicitly in the legal disclaimers to its to its proposal to its scenario. It uh-huh. says we have no intention of changing how we're investing any time <laughs> in the next twenty-year time frame, and so this is just a, this this entire scenario is a what if. But even more remarkably, Shell's getting a lot of credit for this for this putting the scenario out as a means to meet the Paris Uh target. And yet in in this scenario, Shell projects a future in which the the world is continuing to use oil and gas at extremely high levels to the year 2070 and beyond. And anyone who's actually looked seriously at what it will take to address the climate crisis knows that that's, that's incompatible with reality. And the only way that Shell can do that is with a very heavy reliance on on climate, uh, sorry on carbon mm-hmm. capture and sequestration, which largely at any sort of meaningful scale remains uh, an economic myth.
1: Until 2070, they think they can continue doing this. Uh, ExxonMobil has taken a a very big spotlight uh, in this fight, Uh, become a target uh, by climate activists uh, with the Exxon New movement and so forth that uh, began last year. How has Shell managed to avoid that spotlight, given all that, well, that we now know about them, but that uh, all that has been out there about them uh, for years?
0: I think that there are a few factors here. One, and it it really warrants emphasis, is that there is robust evidence that you know demonstrates the investigations and the litigation against Exxon are fully warranted. But I think uh, one of the reasons that Shell, among other companies, has flown below the radar relative to Exxon is that. Shell, to, uh, to a greater extent than Exxon, has had that different public profile, mm-hmm. which I think has drawn you know, much, much lower focus from researchers, from investigators. There's also the fact that Shell is a much more international company than Exxon, at least in public perception. And by that, I mean, um, obviously, Shell is headquartered in the Netherlands and the U.K., mm-hmm. but it's been an active member of the U.S. oil industry, um, literally since the beginning of the twentieth century and as we've shown active in the american petroleum institute and its anti-pollution efforts um, since the middle of the of the twentieth century but what is you know i think the real distinction is that exxon is the biggest of the u.s. oil majors and so it's drawn much more in attention for its role in the you know extensive well-documented and often too often successful climate denial efforts that the industry has funded here
1: uh, last question for you, Carol. Um, uh, how 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 do you view uh, how how will these new documents uh, that you've uh, outlined and analyzed in a crack in the shell, new documents expose hidden climate history? How will those new documents, as you see it, now move the ball forward legally in the various cases that are out there, uh, and in uh, in new cases that are to come?
0: I think the most important thing about these documents is that they exist and that they've come to light. And the reason that I say that is, as we've seen with Exxon, every time more information comes to public light, it gives rise to still new investigations and still more information. Um, These documents breed on each other. Information breeds information. And so now that we have this crack in the shell, Mm -hmm. more information is going to come to light, and it's likely to come to light much more quickly. At the same time, these documents demonstrate not only Shell's early notice of the risks associated with its products, but it do, they do demonstrate the disconnect between what Shell was saying publicly about those risks and what it was discussing internally. Um, and finally, I think it's really, it's really important to emphasize here that this is not simply about denial or obstruction. At, at, a, at root, what this is about is a company you know taking responsibility for the, the massive climate impacts that have arisen from, from products that it's produced over a period of decades. And what we can now show, and this is very legally relevant, is that for decades Shell was aware of those risks, and it continued to take those risks on the assumption that ultimately it would be consumers and governments that bore the cost rather than Shell itself.
1: And that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, and of course, uh, just like uh, the fight uh, against the tobacco industry uh, a decade or two ago, Carol Muffett, president and CEO of the Center for International Environmental Law, otherwise known as C-I-E-L. You can find them at C-I-E-L dot org and at C-L underscore tweets on the Twitters. And you can find Carol Muffet himself, if you'd like to complain, on the Twitters at C-Muffet, the number one. Carol uh, Muffet, really appreciate you joining us today. I'll point folks towards your new report. It is kind of jaw-dropping, frankly, a crack in the shell. New documents expose a hidden climate history over at C-L dot org. Really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much, Brad. You bet. Okay, quick break, and we're back with our closing few minutes. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast.
2: And thanks.
1: I see horizon. Hard not to see it. Welcome back. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, Desi Carol Muffet's comment about uh, the Shell has plans to continue doing the same thing they're doing until, what, 2070? At least. Y- you always say, and we don't get to talk about it much on air, but you always point out, we cannot keep doing this. Oh, heavens th- th- no. This idea that we could keep burning fossil fuels at the same rate we are doing now for what? Uh, that's uh, fifty another fifty years.
2: Oh yeah, it's completely unrealistic. It is, as he put it, I think he said it was not compatible with reality because uh, we already know that scientists have said, that by their best guess, that we really must, must, must reach zero net carbon emissions by 2050. To have any chance at even maybe making the target of two degrees Celsius that we agreed upon in the Paris Climate Agreement.
1: People do, and, and that's to meet just to meet the Paris Agreement. That's And just that's a, not even, and scientists say that's not nearly enough.
2: Oh heavens. And they say that two degrees Celsius is also a recipe for extremely dangerous climate impacts. We need to have less than that as fast as possible. People
1: do not understand how bad this threat is, uh, which is one of the reasons why we try to stay. On it as we do. Uh, well, speaking uh, very quickly here. Speaking of um, <laughs> speaking of, of fumes, <laughs> uh, this is the way uh, AP uh, headlines it: as Trump fumes, senators bid to protect the special counsel. Four senators, two Republicans and two Democrats, now are taking a step to protect Republican special counsel Robert Mueller's job as. President Trump has angrily mused about firing him. Legislation offered on Wednesday by Republicans Tom Tillis of North Carolina and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, along with Democrats Chris Kuhn of Delaware and Cory Booker of New Jersey, would give any special counsel, not just Robert Mueller, but any special counsel, a 10-day window to seek expedited judicial review of a firing. That would encode that into law. The measure combines two separate bipartisan bills that were introduced last summer and, uh, as AP notes, signals escalating concerns in Congress as Trump fumes about a Monday FBI raid of the office of his personal attorney, uh, attorney Michael Cohen. As the investigation has worn on, Trump has called Republican Robert Mueller's probe, a witch hunt on Monday after the raid. He said it was, quote, an attack on our country in a tweet on Wednesday. He said the investigation is, quote, never ending and corrupt. Because, you know, if there's one thing Donald Trump is concerned about, it's corruption, (laughs) especially in government. Senator Graham said in a statement that the purpose of the bill is to ensure a special counsel isn't fired for political reasons. Uh, After introducing similar bills last August when Trump first began criticizing Mueller's investigation, the Republicans here, Tillis and Graham, they kept quiet for months about the need for legislation like this. Democrats continue to push it. But the two GOP senators said they, they didn't think Trump would really move to fire Mueller. But uh, the four senators, uh, all members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, have moved to push out this new bill, combining their two separate bills. Uh, Some Republicans continue, many Republicans, continue to say they see no need for such legislation. Uh, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has shown little interest in such a bill At his uh, retirement announcement on Tuesday, now outgoing U.S. House Speaker Paul Ryan suggested no such bill was needed because the White House had given him their word that Mueller wasn't going to be fired. And why wouldn't uh, he believe them? Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Chuck Grassley has said that he now has some obligation to hold a vote on this bill. In the past, he has said he wanted to see the two bills combined. Well, now they have been. Uh, We'll see if he actually holds that vote in the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee and if Mitch McConnell allows it to come up for a vote on the on the floor of the Senate today. uh, Once again, Trump took to, to Twitter to slam the special counsel probe as a, quote, fake and corrupt investigation headed up by the all Democrat loyalists. He said, Mueller is most conflicted of them all, except for uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who signed the FISA and the Comey letter. Um, But, you know, Paul Ryan's not worried about it. Nothing to worry about. For the record, by the way, uh, because Donald Trump creates so much fake news on his own. uh, Trump, you know, claiming that this is all all Democrat loyalists. Well, uh, Mueller is a Republican. Robert Mueller. Jeff Sessions, the AG, is a Republican. James Comey, the fired FBI director, is a Republican. Rod Rosenstein, the uh, the deputy AG overseeing the uh, special counsel investigation, a Republican. Andrew McCade, the deputy FBI director who was fired a week or two ago by Trump, also a Republican. The four FISA judges are all Republicans who approved the... Uh, the uh, the wiretaps or whatever they were on uh, the former Donald Trump uh, uh, campaign official Carter page. So all Republicans involved, yet Donald Trump, you'll be shocked to learn, continues to lie about it. All right. Got to get out. Sorry. Running long. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyan, to Carol Muffett of the Center for International Environmental Law and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. You can drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. And my thanks to those of you who uh, stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. You're the only ones who do. All right. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.